find a Bible, find some notes. While you get settled, I'm going to read to you Ecclesiastes 7, 8. It says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, which means it's good to finish. Anybody can start, uh, but it's good to finish something. And you learn something when you persevere through something and you make it all the way to the end. And so we've made it to the end. And we've spent 20 weeks talking about systematic theology, and we've covered a lot of ground, and we're going to end tonight with uh, a few thoughts about eschatology. And eschatology is just a big, fancy theological term that means the study of the end or the study of the last things. And I told you last week, eschatology is a very big umbrella, and you can put a lot of different topics underneath that umbrella. There's lots of things we could discuss under the umbrella of eschatology. Last week was technically eschatology. We talked about the return of Christ, the parousia, and how that's going to play out, um, and uh, the millennium and some of those issues. Tonight we're just going to focus on heaven and hell. And you know that heaven and hell are a popular topic today, and you could point to a lot of different places to prove that point, that people are interested in heaven and hell. But I think at least in our sort of weird Christian subculture, the one place you see interest in this topic is in all of the books that have been written about people who say they have died or had some sort of -of out-of-body experience and gone to either heaven or hell. And we're not going to talk specifically about any of these books. I just did a quick search and found some, uh, some of the cover art for these books. And there's lots more that I didn't include on this slide. There's just lots and lots of folks who say, I died, or I had this dream, or I had this vision, or I had this experience, and God took me to heaven or to hell, and then he sent me back here to tell you about it and to warn you about it. And I would never say that God couldn't do that to a person. I would say that when you come back and your description of heaven or hell doesn't line up with what the scriptures say, I question whether or not you had that experience or what sort of drug you were taking when you had that experience or what you ate for dinner the night before you had that experience or whatever. And you don't need to feel bad about questioning people and being skeptical about uh, those sorts of things. And I'll be honest with you, just looking at that um, list of books right there without naming any of them and talking about any of them, there's at least a couple of them up there on the screen where the authors have recanted and said, we made it up. It really didn't happen. Um, and strangely enough, that they still sell books, and uh, people still buy the books. And um, there's only one of those books. I won't tell you which one. There's only one of them I have in my office, and I didn't buy it. A friend gave it to me, and I keep it as an example of bad theology and bad teaching. And it's not good at all, and there's almost nothing true about it. And um, I'm not saying that's true of all of these books, but... For a lot of them, you just got to be careful. And Christians, I'm always amazed. Maybe I should just stop being amazed about it, but I'm always amazed at how easily we fall for stuff like this and how quick we are to say, well, they're talking about heaven and they're talking about Jesus, so it must be true, and whatever they say happened must have happened. And I'm just like giving you permission tonight to hear some things like, you know, what these people talk about and to say, I don't believe it. It doesn't make you a bad Christian to say, I don't believe it. Or it doesn't make you a bad Christian to just say, I don't care. I don't care what experience you had. 
I don't care that you say you went one way or the other. There's really no point in arguing with those people, whether it happened or didn't happen. I'm just not even interested in reading most of these books and what they have to say because where we started in this series, the doctrine of revelation, God has spoken to us. And the scriptures are sufficient. That's one of the ideas we started off talking about in this series, the sufficiency of scripture. Everything that we need to know about faith and life and godliness and our relationship with God is found in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, it doesn't make it untrue, but it means you don't need it. The scriptures are breathed out by God and they're useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, training in righteousness that the man of God or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You can be equipped for every good work knowing only and all that the Bible says without anything added to that by somebody's dream or vision or after-death experience or whatever. So we want to think about heaven and hell um, under this umbrella of eschatology. And we'll just start with some general things, and then we'll specifically focus on heaven and then on hell. So what do I need to know about eschatology and the eternal states? Number one, death is not the end. It is not the end. That may seem like an obvious statement, you know, for a Wednesday night Bible study, but it's just worth laying a foundation and saying this life is not all that there is. And we're not going to look up these verses. 1 Samuel 28 uh, is a strange passage where Saul is a king, and he has kicked out all of the witches and the mediums and the diviners and all these people out of the kingdom. But he sort of gets in a bind, and he wants to go talk to one of them, so he sneaks around and he finds one, and they conjure up the spirit of Samuel who has died. And you can make whatever you want out of the text, but I'm just going to tell you that the plain reading of the text is that they really conjured Samuel up. It really was Samuel who appeared and talked to him. It wasn't just a demon or it wasn't just some apparition, but it was really him. And that's a whole other lesson on how did that happen and what was going on. But he was alive, in a sense, even though he had died. You can look at 2 Samuel 12. It's the story of David losing a child in his relationship with Bathsheba, and he's mourning for the child, and he's grieving for the child, and then the child actually dies, and he stops mourning, and he stops grieving, and he says, the child is not going to come back to me, but I'm going to go to the child. And that's more than just we're going to end up buried in a grave next to each other, but that's I'm going to see the child again in the next life or this, uh, this next experience beyond life on this earth. So you can look the rest of those up. Death is not the end. Number two, there will be... A final judgment. There will be a final judgment. And we are going to look these scriptures up. Let's start with Ecclesiastes. This is the conclusion to Ecclesiastes at the very end. Ecclesiastes 12.13, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There is going to be a judgment and some sort of account given for everything that you've done, whether good or evil. Look in the New Testament at the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. This is Paul when he's preaching at the Areopagus. And he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So not only is there going to be a a judgment day, a reckoning given, but Paul says that day is fixed. God knows the day when there's going to be this final judgment. Look at Romans chapter 2, just a few pages over to the right. Romans 2 Verse 5 says, because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a day coming where God will reveal this righteous judgment on the objects of his wrath. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, just as it is appointed for man to die once... And after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So you see a couple of ideas when you look at the Hebrew passage and the other passages. There's a sense in which the Bible talks about when you die, you go to stand before the Lord and you face a judgment. There's another sense when the Bible talks about a final judgment, the last judgment. And if you die before Christ returns, you're going to be involved in both of those. You're going to die, and you're going to stand before the Lord, and there's going to be some sort of judgment. But then all people, believers and unbelievers, which we'll talk about in a minute, will stand before the Lord in this final judgment. And basically, I just want to remind you of something we talked about a few weeks ago. Basically, there's four ideas about how things are going to go down on this final day of judgment, this last reckoning when all people stand before God. And the four ideas or the four positions are exclusivism, inclusivism, pluralism, and universalism. Okay, And so we'll work our way up from the bottom. Universalism. That's the idea that everyone's going to go to heaven. Okay, Regardless of who you are, what you've done, whether you have faith in Jesus, you heard the gospel, you respond to the gospel, everyone is just going to eventually end up there. And there's different flavors of this. Some people say, you know, maybe you have to be punished for a while or maybe you have a a second opportunity or whatever. But the basic idea is that sooner or later, all of us are going to be in heaven. That's universalism. It's universal, okay? Working up from that is pluralism. Pluralism says not everybody's going to be there, but you definitely don't have to be a Christian to be there. Because the pluralist would say every religion offers a path or a road to salvation. And it may be different in Buddhism than it is in Hinduism, than it is in Christianity, than it is in Islam. But all these faiths are just sort of leading up the same way, the same direction. And we're all going to get there if you're following a path. You have to be on a path, right? You have to be sincere in your faith, whatever it is. And you have to be a, a nice person, a good person. But you're all leading up this same mountain and you're all going to end up in the same path. There's value in all of the religions of the world to save. So there's a plurality of ways in which a person can be saved. So that's pluralism. Inclusivism is the idea. This one gets tricky. Inclusivism is the idea that there is only salvation in Jesus. However... Some people are going to end up being saved without ever knowing about Jesus. They're going to be saved by Jesus, 
Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection, that's the means of their salvation. They're just never going to hear about it in this life. And so they're going to be a good, sincere, genuine Buddhist, for example. And when they die, they're going to stand before God and God's going to say, well, you are a good Buddhist. You're not saved because Buddhism saved you. But you are a sincere person and a good person. And surprise, surprise, you're saved by Jesus. Congratulations, you get in. You're included through Jesus. That's this idea of inclusivism. And the last idea, or the top idea, the one that we would believe or that I've suggested to you as the biblical view is exclusivism, is that only those who have faith in Jesus in this life, who hear the gospel and who respond in repentance and faith, will ultimately be saved. Those who do not respond in repentance and faith to the gospel will not be saved. And those who do not hear the gospel do not have the opportunity to respond to the gospel, will not be saved. And I believe, without question, that's the biblical view. And you can be uncomfortable with exclusivism, but it just means you're uncomfortable with the Bible. And your real argument isn't exclusivism, but your real argument is with the Bible. And so those are four views on this final day of judgment of how things are going to shake out. And we talked about those back when we talked about missions. So let's say a few more things about this final judgment, okay? What's it going to be like? Um, some of this stuff I had to take off of your, uh, of your notes. I will just mention to you that it's going to occur after the millennial reign of Christ. And I think that was one thing I had to scratch from your outline. But it's going to occur after Christ returns and he reigns on the earth. Then comes this final judgment. You see that in Revelation 20. Obviously, Jesus is going to be the judge on judgment day at this final judgment. We just read that out of Acts 17. He's fixed a day on which he's going to judge the world by a man. And he's given proof that that's going to happen by raising this man from the dead. So Jesus is going to be the judge. Look at these other passages that talk about Jesus as the judge. John chapter 5, one of those passages, verse 22. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. The Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So that's pretty clear. Jesus is going to be the judge. Look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So he's giving Timothy this charge, this commission, He said, I'm doing it in the presence of Christ Jesus. He's the one who's going to judge the living and the dead at his appearing. So Jesus is going to be the judge. And there's going to be a lot of people, I think it's just safe to say this, there's going to be a lot of American people who are going to stand before the judge on that judgment day and the first thought in their brain is going to be, well, I didn't think you were like this. They're going to have heard of Jesus I'm not going to be surprised to stand before Jesus necessarily. But their idea of Jesus is just some easygoing, fun-loving hippie who just affirms you and is good with whatever you want to do and whoever you want to be. 
And they're going to stand before the judge, the one who's going to judge the living and the dead, and it's going to be very different than what a lot of people expect. Next, there's going to be degrees of punishment for unbelievers. You say this, some people get squirmy, and I don't really understand why. The Bible is pretty clear that there is going to be degrees of punishment for unbelievers. And I think part of the reason people get squirmy with this is because they've heard the old line, all sin's the same. All sin's the same in God's eyes. Sin is sin. Yeah, yeah, sin is sin. And any sin separates you from God. And all sin is offensive to God. But I don't know that the Bible really paints a picture that all sin is the same. And just we'll look at a few of these passages that talk about degrees of punishment sort of suggest all sin is not the same. Look at Matthew chapter 10. He sent the apostles out, and he's sort of warning them that some people are going to reject you. Sending them out on a little mission trip. Some people are going to receive you. It's going to be great. Some people are not going to receive you. Shake the dust off your feet when you leave. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Basically saying there's going to be different judgments meted out. One, for these ignorant people of Sodom and Gomorrah who didn't know any better in a sense, they're going to be judged. But they're not going to be held to the same standard as these villages where I've preached and where I'm sending you to preach, they're going to be held to a higher standard. And judgment is going to be worse for these villages than it's going to be for Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what he says in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse 47 and 48. This is the end of a parable, and Jesus is telling them to be ready for his return. Verse 47 says, The servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more. And this isn't a parable, and so you kind of have to be careful, but the principle Jesus is laying out is sort of, you're going to be held accountable for what was entrusted to you. And if you just want to bring it home to our context, you could say, look, if you grew up in the United States, in the Bible Belt, and your parents drug you to church all the time, and you sat in church, and you heard the gospel, and you walk away from it, and you don't follow Jesus, you, on the day of judgment, will be held to a higher standard than the pagan guy on the other side of the world who's never heard anything about Jesus. He's still going to be held accountable for his sin. We're not letting him off the hook. We're just saying this person had more entrusted to them, more opportunity entrusted to them, and they are going to be held to a different standard. Look what, uh, look what the Bible says in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, way in the back. says, I saw the dead, this is verse 12 and 13, saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, the books were opened, another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, they're judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done, that's the basis of the judgment, what did they do, what were their works, 
It says the same thing at the end of verse 13. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Look, I can give you a lot of more verses here, but the basic idea is there is going to be a difference in judgment on the last day. Uh, there will be different degrees of punishment for unbelievers. Now, when I say we're talking about judgment day, most of us just assume we're talking about lost people. Because maybe you think about verses like uh, John 5, where Jesus says you're not going to come into judgment uh, if you trust in me. Or you think about Romans 8, 1, that says there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And you think, well, believers, we don't have to go through judgment day. We get like the free pass. But the Bible says we are going to experience judgment day. And it's not going to be we're experiencing judgment day as it's like iffy if we're going to get into heaven or not. But the issue for believers on Judgment Day is going to be what are your rewards going to be in the next life. And so the next thing right here is there will be degrees of reward for believers. Different degrees of reward. And I know that when people hear that, some people start to think, so if I don't get as much reward as my neighbor, he's going to be happier than I am in heaven. And I'm going to be less happy, which means I'm going to be, in comparison, miserable in heaven. Well, that doesn't sound very much like heaven. And I think maybe the, the only, I tried this week to think, how, how can you make sense of this where no one's going to be unhappy in heaven, right? Nobody's going to be miserable in heaven. Um, and so I tried to think of, of an earthly human example, and I don't know that there really is one, but maybe this helps you think about it. Um, before I married my wife, I was happy. Like, I wasn't miserable moping around, I'm, I'm the worst ever, I'm so lonely, life is terrible. You're like, life is pretty good, you're happy, right? Then you get married and you say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm more happy now. It's not that I wasn't happy before, but there's sort of a new experience of that. You sort of have new relationship and new love that you didn't have before. So you're married and we didn't have any kids for a while. And we weren't miserable during that time. We weren't somehow incomplete during that time. But then you have a kid come along and you say, well, I didn't experience this love before. It wasn't that I didn't love before and it wasn't that I wasn't happy before, but I just have sort of a new experience that I formerly didn't have. And the same goes as you have more kids. You sort of think, how could I love any kids more? Well, then you have another one and you love them just like the others. And I think that's kind of the idea maybe with rewards in heaven. No one's going to be miserable. Nobody's going to be moping around like, oh, this is the worst. I didn't get as much as Crystal got or I didn't get as much as Richard got. I wish I, was, wish I would have been better in the earth, earthly life. But it's just sort of maybe a different experience or a fuller experience. I don't know if that helps you. If it just makes you more confused, I'm sorry. But there are going to be degrees of reward and we'll look at a few of these passages. Look at Matthew 25. Sometimes it's just best to quit talking and read the Bible. Listen to what the Bible says. Matthew 25. This is a parable or a story about uh, the sheep and the goats going to be separated. And then we'll just pick it up in verse 34 after the separation. The king is going to say to those on the right, Come, blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. A stranger, you welcomed me. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And they say, Lord, when did we do all these things? When did we ever see you as a stranger or sick or in prison? 
And the king will answer them, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So certainly the idea in that parable of what you have done in this life is somehow going to translate into your reward and Jesus thanking you and commending you for that in the next life. Look at Luke 19. Luke 19. Again, we're picking up in the the middle of the parable of the, the ten minas. But chapter 19, verse 17 says, He said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came and said, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, Are you... Uh, and you are to be over five cities. So they didn't get the same reward. They got different rewards based on their faithfulness uh, with these minas. Look at Romans chapter 2. Romans 2. Verse 6. It says, He will render to each one according to his works. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and also for the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So there's this idea of whatever you've done, your works, you're going to be sort of rewarded or rendered according to your works. Uh, let's look at one more, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. We'll read verse 10 to 15. It says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. Probably most of your translations capitalize the letter D in day, like the judgment day, the day. The day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And look, Paul's not saying you're going to have to walk through some fire pit, right? Don't take it too literally. What he's saying is on the judgment day, all your works, all the things you've done are going to be tested. Like if you just put them in a fire, you test something to see its, its strength and its endurance. And some of the things you've done are just going to burn up. Like It's going to be lost. You wasted that opportunity. Some of those things are going to come through the fire and you're going to be rewarded on the other side. And he says here, some of them are going to, things are going to be, uh, be burned up, but you're going to be saved, even though you suffer loss. So he's not talking about salvation, but he's talking about this issue of reward. There will be degrees of reward for believers. Okay, next, the angels who rebelled are going to face judgment. That's going to be part of the judgment day. And I'm going to let you look up the verses about the angels. Um, the most interesting one to me is 1 Corinthians 6, um, because 1 Corinthians 6 says that somehow you and I, as believers, are going to be involved in judging the angels, which is interesting because Jesus says a lot of things in the Gospels about the angels are going to be involved in judging us, 
they're going to be sort of gathering God's people and separating God's people and making a distinction between God's people. And then like the tables will be turned somewhere in there and we, God's people, believers, are going to be involved in judging the angels who rebelled against him. And so I'll let you look those verses up on your own. Last idea is this, and this is probably the most important idea. Everything that happens in the final judgment will be perfectly just. So it's easy when you start thinking about Judgment Day and different people and scenarios and loved ones or missions uh, opportunities around the world where we, I shared a quote with you a few weeks ago and you said, uh, Carl Henry said, the gospel's only good news if it gets there in time. And you think about the Judgment Day in light of some of those things, you can just almost worry yourself to death and at some point you've got to just stop and say, whatever happens, the judge is just. And it's all going to be right. Like he's not going to mess anything up at all. Um, Cody got jury duty the other day. And they had this traffic case. And uh, it was like a, a very clear thing. They found the guy guilty and they said, you're done. You're guilty. It's easy. No decision to be made. And they sent the decision in and they called them back. And they said, well, we got a problem. The paperwork... The date on the paperwork doesn't match the date on the video where they caught the guy doing it. And because the paperwork doesn't match the video, we just got to throw the whole thing out. And you're like, well, he got away. It's None of that's going to happen on Judgment Day, right? No one's sneaking through on bad paperwork. And nobody who really is innocent is going to get unjustly condemned. It's all going to be right. And God's going to sort it out exactly the way it needs to be sorted out. And let's just look at a few of these verses to remind ourselves of this truth, because this is important. Genesis 18. If you, you get uneasy about judgment, you're in good company, because Abraham got uneasy about God judging Sodom, and he tried to bargain him down and talk to him about how many righteous people did there need to be in that city to save it. And he says something Really, really profound in chapter 18, verse 25. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the obvious answer to the question and the way that he asked it in the original language is, yes, the judge of all the earth is going to do what is just and what is right. You can be assured of that. Look at the other end of your Bible at 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, in uh, his two letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, he has a lot to say about judgment. First Peter 1.17 says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And the key part is the first part of that verse where he says, God the Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Nothing gets by him. He doesn't ever condemn the innocent. He doesn't ever let the guilty go free. He's a good judge and he does what needs to be done to set things right. Um, let's move on and talk about heaven. Okay? I like this quote from Wayne Grudem, so I just threw the quote in there. Heaven is the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. That may not be the way that you would define heaven, but I think that's a pretty good definition. It's the place where God most fully makes known his presence to bless. 
And just real quick, this is not on your outline. Do not try to write this down because I'm going to read through it too quick and I'm not coming back to it. I guess you could take a picture of it if you want to. Um, This is J.I. Packer. And this is one of the books I've used week in and week out for just some basic ideas. Uh, He's got like 50, 60 chapters in here on different doctrines, lots of scriptures included. This would be a great book if you wanted something to buy. I put this one in the easy section every week. This is easy reading. And so this is one of the things Dr. Packer says about heaven. This is his first paragraph in the book. Heaven, which in both Hebrew and Greek is a word meaning sky, is the Bible term for God's home, where his throne is, the place of his presence to which the glorified Christ returned, where the church militant and triumphant now unites for worship, and where one day Christ's people will be with their Savior forever. It's pictured as a place of rest, a city, a country, and at some future point, at the time of Christ's return for judgment, it will take the form of a reconstructed cosmos. That's a really great quote about heaven. And uh, I'm just going to point out a few different things here about heaven, and then we're going to talk about hell. Okay? When believers die, their spirit or their soul, you pick the term you want to use, goes to be with the Lord. When believers die, their spirit or their soul goes to be with the Lord. Do not buy into the the Bible teachers or the authors or the theologians that tell you your spirit and your soul are two different things. They're not. The words are used interchangeably all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It's the same thing. Uh, There's some people that try to separate them and make a distinction, and it's just baloney. So your spirit, your soul, your immaterial person goes to be with the Lord. And uh, we've seen this in Philippians. If you look over at Philippians chapter 1, verse 23... We've been talking about Philippians on Sunday mornings. And in verse 23, Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. If I'm not with you, I leave, my body goes in the ground, and my soul goes to be with Jesus, and that would be a great thing. And uh, he says something very similar in 2 Corinthians 5.8. This is, this is something you need to wrap your brain around when you're thinking about heaven. If you die before Jesus comes back and we put your body in the dirt and your soul or your spirit goes to be with Jesus, that is a temporary state, okay? It is temporary for your soul to be separated from your body. And it's a good state because you get to be with Jesus. Paul says it's far better to be with Jesus. But it's not going to be your final state because, this is the very next point on your outline, God created his people to be embodied creatures, and in the end, he will give his people new bodies. So this idea that forever and ever and ever and ever, you're just going to be a spirit sort of floating around is not a biblical idea. There'll be a time where your spirit or your soul is separated from your body, but in the end, you get a new body. And that's the point of 1 Corinthians 15. And I tried to pick out, you know, a few verses or a verse here or there to read. And I'm just going to tell you, you need to just read the whole thing. Just read 1 Corinthians 15. And the whole point is, God raised Jesus from the dead. And one day he's going to raise you from the dead. And your body is going to be reunited with your soul. And you're going to have a body, perfect body, just like God intends you to have with a soul forever and ever and ever. And that makes a lot of sense if you've read the book of Genesis, right? Because in the beginning... God takes dirt and he forms it into a man and then he breathes into it and it becomes a living being. And when he's done with all of that, he says, what? This is good. 
This is very good. What I have made is very good. The body, I made the body. That is a very, very good thing. He was pleased with it. And sin affects our physical bodies, but in the end, God's going to overrule that. And that's the point of 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, next. In the end, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth. And I think this is missing from a lot of people's eschatology. I know I've joked about this before on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, but a lot of people have the idea that heaven is you're floating around like some kind of phantom and you're probably wearing a robe for some reason and you have a harp and you're on your own little cloud and we're all in formation and we just sing out of the hymn book forever and ever and ever and it never ends and you're like, that is so boring. And it would be boring. It would be good for like 30 minutes, an hour maybe, hour and a half. But at some point, you get bored with that, and the Bible has good news. You're not going to do that forever. In the end, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the only thing I would say to that, just this is so obvious, but right now you don't live in heaven. You live on earth. And in the end, you're not going to live in the new heaven. You're going to live on the new earth. And the Bible describes heaven, the new Jerusalem, coming down to the earth. In the existence that we're going to have when it's all wrapped up and it's all consummated and Jesus has come back and the millennium's over and the judgment and all that stuff, the resurrection, is going to be a physical existence on a new earth. And it's going to be really, really great. And so let's just look at a few verses that talk about this. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. Verse 17. He says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. A new heaven and a new earth. Look at chapter 66 in Isaiah, verse 22. He says, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And look over in the New Testament, you see the same idea. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and there's going to be righteousness dwelling in that place. And then if you go to the end, the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. It's one of my favorite passages. Look at Revelation 21. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You remember Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is the place that he's prepared. This new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven from God as a bride adorned for her husband, and heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And you say, where is that going to happen? In the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven to the new earth. And he says the exact same thing later in the chapter, in verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God as its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper clear as crystal, a high wall, 12 gates, the 12 tribes are going to be on the gates, and the 12 foundations of the apostles, it's going to be this great city. 
uh, where God's people are going to live. And you go on and read the description. I would just tell you, be real careful when you start reading the description that follows and trying to map out the size of this thing and the dimensions and all of it. Because I don't think it's a literal description. I think it's just saying this place is going to be awesome. It's going to be really, really great. And the shape of this city is like a giant cube. And the shape of the Holy of Holies was like a cube. And the point is that this is the presence of God with his people. And it's this symbolic measurements and numbers to help you understand God with his people. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And the best part of heaven, or the new creation, whatever you want to call it, is the presence of God. That's the best part. The streets of gold are going to be great. No more sickness is going to be great. No more allergy pills is going to be awesome. No more back surgeries or toe surgeries or, you know, colds or the flu. All that's going to be great. Your loved ones who love Jesus are going to be there. That's going to be great. But the best part is the presence of God. And you see that in Revelation 21 and 22. Now let's talk about hell. And I'm just going to say this right off the, off the bat here. I, I cut some things off of our discussion of hell to make it fit on your outline. And I thought better to cut out. Uh, some about hell than heaven, so um, hell. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Eternal, meaning it has no end. Conscious, meaning you're aware of it. You experience it, and it's punishment for the wicked. I heard a great little turn of phrase today listening to a podcast. The guy was talking about heaven and hell And he said, we get to go to heaven because of what God has done for us. That's how you go to heaven, because of what God has done for you through Jesus. You go to hell because of what you've done. Go to heaven because of what God has done for you, but you go to hell not because God hasn't done something for you or because God's forced you to go there, but you go to hell because of what you have done. And that's what Grudem is saying here. It's a place of punishment for the wicked. So again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw Packer up here, same book, and I'm going to give you his first paragraph on hell uh, from this book. The sentimental secularism of modern Western culture with its exalted optimism about human nature, its shrunken idea of God, and its skepticism as to whether personal morality really matters, in other words, a decay of conscience, makes it hard for Christians to take the reality of hell seriously. The revelation of hell in Scripture assumes a depth of insight into divine holiness and human and demonic sinfulness that most of us do not have. Just think about what he's saying. What the Bible says about hell assumes that you understand something about how holy God is and how sinful you are that most of us don't really understand how holy God is and how sinful we are. And until you understand those two things, you can't really make sense of what the Bible says about hell. The doctrine of hell appears in the New Testament as a Christian essential, and we're called to try to understand it as Jesus and his apostles did. The New Testament uses two main words to talk about hell. One is the word Hades, and the other is the word Gehenna. Um, Hades simply means the realm of the dead, And it's used in other ancient literature, religious and non-religious. Just means the place of the dead. And Gehenna is derived from the Valley of Hanam that's outside of Jerusalem. 
Uh, you can go back in Jeremiah and read that there were some kings of Judah who actually sacrificed their children to pagan gods in the valley of Hanam. And it was sort of after that became known as a cursed place. And in Jesus' day, it was used for, parts of it were used for a trash dump where they would burn trash. And parts of it were used as a burial place for criminals uh, or indigent type people. Uh, it's just kind of a dead place. And it's sort of, the Valley of Hanam sort of took on a, a meaning of its own, a life of its own. In Jesus' day, they used this word Gehenna to talk about hell. And the reference of it, sort of earthly reference, was talking about this valley where they're burning trash and they're burying criminals. And the kings used to sacrifice their children. It's this place of death. And Jesus picks up on that, talks about Gehenna. You know how I just told you, be careful about people who say your soul and your spirit are two different things and they're totally different. And Be real careful with people who say Hades is one thing and Gehenna is one thing. Okay. Um, sometimes pastors and Bible teachers and authors, like they try to write whole books and have whole sermons on the difference between the two and this one is this and this one is this. And you can make a little bit of distinction in what they mean, you know, as a, a place of the dead or is this place of death and punishment um, but they're used interchangeably some in the New Testament and so you can't just slice them down the middle and say this is one thing and this is another thing so just be careful with that they're both terms used to talk about hell and one of the things I cut out of your notes is all of the references to be honest with you most of them come from the lips of Jesus that talk about hell as a place of fire or darkness or worms not being quenched or torment or anguish or gnashing of teeth all of these descriptions and you can take those literal and that's fine you can take them symbolically um, a lot of good theologians take them symbolically I take them symbolically because some of them describe a fire and some of them describe darkness and it kind of seems strange how you would have both of those things in the same place so if you take them literal or you take them symbolic let's all just agree on this uh, the experience of it is going to be far worse than the words used to describe it, whether it's little, literal or figurative, symbolic. Uh, it's going to be a terrible place. And this is not in the Bible, so I sort of give it to you with fear and trembling, but there was a guy named Dante um, who wrote a book called The Inferno, and the, the Inferno is filled with junk. Like, it's so ridiculous. It's just made-up stuff. It's pagan stuff. It's... Uh, Greek and Roman mythology stuff and a little bit of Bible thrown in on top but one of the things he says is that there's this sign outside of hell and the sign reads all hope abandon ye who enter here and I think that's a pretty good for as dopey as the rest of the book is I think that's a pretty good description of hell to just say it is a place of no more hope um, and again you can take the terms literally or you can take them figuratively but it's going to be a terrible place and it's a place that when you're there, you have no more hope. And there's a couple of things I want to make sure you understand. Because hell's a difficult thing to talk about. Um, and so the first thing I want to make sure you get is this. Those sent to hell are given over to their sin and they never repent. There is no repentance in hell. So you can read Romans 1 where Paul talks about sort of the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is that is God just giving you over to the sin that you want and just saying, you want it, you got it. 
And that's the ultimate picture of hell. Yes, it's a place of punishment, but the punishment in itself at least involves to a large measure you just being given over to the sin that you want so badly. And to me, the clearest picture of there being no repentance in hell is Luke 16, and it's the parable of rich man and Lazarus. And we won't read it. You can read it later. Um, In this life, the rich man was always sort of bossing Lazarus around like some little, you know, slave, servant, nobody. And once they died and the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven or to Abraham's bosom, the rich man is still barking orders at him. And the rich man is still trying to tell everybody what to do, trying to tell Abraham what to do, trying to boss people around, do this, give me some water. I'm thirsty. He's focused on himself. He's not focused on other people so much. He's focused on himself, and he's, he's barking orders like he's in charge. And the picture you see there is he's not repentant at all. Like no one goes to hell and suddenly gets a soft heart for Jesus and spends eternity in hell singing hymns. You're just given over to sin and hatred and ugliness and depravity. So you're given over to your sin and no one repents in hell. And secondly, Scripture describes hell as unending. As unending. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And you've heard the objections. It makes people uncomfortable because they say, how is it fair? Anytime somebody starts a theological argument with that, you ought to just run away by the way, when they say, how is it fair? Just run away. Just leave them. But they say, how is it fair for God to punish people forever for 30, 40, 50, 60, 80, 100 years of sin on this earth? How is that fair? And people get uncomfortable with that, that it's unending and that there's no going back. And they get so uncomfortable with it that they sort of try to come up with ways to get out of it. And some of the ways they get out of it, one way is the idea of purgatory, that you're going to go to a place of punishment and you're going to sort of pay your debt if you were a bad person but not too bad of a person. You're going to pay your debt and then you're going to get sprung out or people who are here on the earth can do some nice things for you to help you get out a little bit quicker maybe. Um, The problem with that view is if you say nobody repents in hell, then you're kind of stuck in a downward spiral. Like, if you're there to pay off debt, but you never repent and you keep on sinning, you're going to be there a while. You're not getting out of there. Um, It's not a biblical idea at all. There's an idea called annihilationism. And um, annihilationism is the idea that you're going to go to hell, you're going to be punished, it's going to be terrible. But then at some point, God's wrath at you is going to be extinguished and you're just going to be sort of snuffed out, annihilated. Like, you'll cease to exist. Um, And there's another view called conditional mortality, kind of the same idea. It's basically the idea that the only reason you live forever is if God sustains you to make you live forever. And he's going to withdraw that from people in hell and they'll just cease to be. It's not necessarily that they'll be directly annihilated, but God's just going to withdraw that sustaining grace from them and they'll be mortal and they won't live forever in that sense. The biblical the biblical teaching is that it's forever. There's just no way around that. And if you look at these passages, um, we'll end our discussion of hell with these. Look at Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 46.
this is really the only passage you need to look at to settle this issue in my mind. Um, We're back at the parable of the sheep and the goats. It says in verse 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. One's going to eternal punishment, one's going to eternal life. And if you're a believer, I certainly think that you would read that part about eternal life and say that eternal means eternal, right? Like it means you're going to live forever, living forever, eternal life. You're going to be with God forever. It's not going to have an end. Seems awful strange to use the exact same word in the exact same sentence, eternal punishment, and say, well, it's not going to last forever. Like it's going to end at some point. Using it in the normal sense of the word, reading it at face value in the same sentence, in context, it seems like uh, Jesus is definitely trying to say both of these states are unending. And so scripture describes hell as unending. Why do I need to know these things? We'll go through these quick. Number one, we've got to be critical of those who claim to have experiences of heaven or hell. And by critical, I don't mean hateful. I don't mean you say nasty things about them. I don't mean you assume they're all liars and making it up. I just mean you have to be careful. You can't just have a default assumption that if someone says they died and went somewhere, that it really happened. Um, and even if it did happen, doesn't matter. And I, I give you Luke 16 here again. This is a parable of rich man and Lazarus. And in that parable, you go back and read it. The rich man says, send Lazarus back from the dead. He's still bossing Lazarus around. Send Lazarus back from the dead to warn my brothers. And Abraham says, they got the, they got the Bible. They have Bibles. They have the law and the prophets. Let them read that. And the rich man says, no, 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 no. They're not going to listen to the law and the prophets. But if somebody comes back from the dead, they're going to pay attention. So send Lazarus back. And Abraham says, I'm not going to do it. If they won't listen to Moses, the law and the prophets, they're not going to listen even if somebody comes back from the dead. If Scripture's not going to convince somebody, then some crazy experience isn't going to convince them. Which just makes me really question all of these people that say, I died, I went here, and God sent me back to warn you. Like, well, that just doesn't fit really well with the parable that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus and how people would respond and and believe the truth. So be critical of those who claim to have these experiences. Secondly, the reality of final judgment enables us to forgive. To forgive. And I'm going to let you look at Romans 12. Paul talks about forgiving your enemies, which is hard for all of us to do. And Paul doesn't want you just to forgive simply because. But if you read the whole passage, he wants you to forgive because in the end, God's going to take care of it. It's not your place to take care of it. He doesn't need you to be the judge. He's the judge. So let him handle it. That enables us to forgive. When you forgive somebody, it's not you saying it's okay that you sinned against me. It's not you saying, it's no big deal that you sinned against me. It's just simply you saying, I'm not the judge. Not my place to hold this against you and punish you for it. That's God's place. So it enables us to forgive. Number three, final judgment encourages sacrifice for evangelism and missions. We won't say too much about this because we talked about it when we talked about missiology. Romans 10, they've got to be sent. They've got to preach. They've got to hear they got to believe. they got to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. 
Number four, I like this quote, so I put the whole quote in there. The human heart is prone to doubt the doctrine of eternal damnation. And that comes from my favorite Baptist theologian, John Dagg, in his manual of theology. And he just, he's saying, look, everybody's uncomfortable with it. When you start talking about it and studying it and thinking about it, it just makes you uncomfortable. And we, we as humans are prone to doubt it. You just need to be aware that you're prone to doubt it and check yourself with Scripture, not just your own feelings on a subject. Number five, doctrine of hell helps us to grasp the holiness of God. And really, I think it's hard to understand the holiness of God without the doctrine of hell, and it's impossible to understand the doctrine of hell without the holiness of God. Those two things go together and help explain each other. And the reason that punishment in hell would be eternal is not because you've sinned an eternal period of years on this earth, but it's because you've sinned against the one who is infinitely and eternally holy. The issue is the magnitude of the one that you've sinned against, not necessarily the number of times you've sinned or how many, how many years you've sinned. So you've got to understand the holiness of God to make sense of this. Number six, the hope of the new creation ought to motivate us to pursue godliness. This ties in with all we talked about with the idea of rewards. Jesus is just not at all bashful in calling us to do certain things or not do certain things and using eternal rewards as motivation for that. He does it all the time. And he's not saying you've got to earn your way into heaven or you're going to work your way out of heaven. He's just saying you want the reward. Um, He's not bashful about that. Here's a quote from John Dagg one last time. If this were the only world, it would be well for us to make the best of it. But we have proof that another world exists and a revelation from it has been made by which we may learn how to obtain a portion there that will be full of unmixed happiness and will endure forever. So this is not the only world. That's right where we started. Death is not the end. There is something else. And we have a revelation from this other world. And it tells us how you can get a portion there and how great that portion is going to be. Unmixed happiness in that next life. And so the hope of the new creation motivates us to pursue godliness. Last idea is this. The hope of new creation ought to fill us with hope. Ought to fill us with hope. John 14 is a good place to end. John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And the whole discussion goes on to talk about I'm the way, the truth, and the life is said in the context of verse 1 where he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. He's trying to give his disciples hope. Um, I've listed a few books here. If you like to read about heaven and hell, um, there's an awful lot of books at the Christian bookstore on heaven and hell. And a lot of them are just not good. So be careful if you read and you study about heaven and hell. And uh, especially on the issue of hell, if that's something you're interested in and like to think through, there's a book called Hell Under Fire. 
the two guys I listed there, Morgan and Peterson, they're not the authors, but they're the editors, and it's sort of a compilation of different guys contributing chapters. And it's not an easy read, but any of you guys could work through it, and uh, it really helps you think through hell, which is a difficult, difficult uh, doctrine to make sense of and, and to reckon with. So there you go. That's week 20 of systematic theology.